Welcome to Startup Cornell, a podcast exploring the bold entrepreneurial ideas coming from our students, faculty, staff, and young alumni. I'm Kathy Havis, your host, and today we're going to talk with Ken Babcock, founder of Tango, a company that helps you to create beautiful step-by-step how-to guides with screenshots. We're excited to hear the story of how he got into this space, what's next for the company, and what inspires him to want to solve these pesky problems we have at work. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. And remember to rate and review our podcast by scrolling to the bottom of the episode. That way, even more young entrepreneurs can find the podcast and be inspired to follow their dreams. So welcome to Ken. Thanks, Kathy. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's nice to have you. So I always ask our guests first to give us a 30-second elevator pitch about your company, how it started, what it's all about. Absolutely. So Tango, we're, uh, like you said, we're, we're allowing people to create documentation in the flow of work. And basically what that means is you have your processes, your tools, things that you use in the workplace that make you really good at your job. A lot of times when it comes to documenting it, that's a separate task entirely. And so what we've tried to do is basically provide a Chrome extension that allows you to create documentation of those processes as you're doing them. Awesome. And I looked at your website and it seems like this would solve so many issues for people. So I wondered how you came up with this idea. Was it your own personal frustration with having to do this yourself or have you just heard this problem from various people? How'd you think of this? Yeah, so I met my co-founders, Brian and Dan, we were actually at Harvard Business School. We've been introduced through uh, some mutual friends, and we talked a lot about team performance. You know, we were sort of exploring like a couple ideas that we had, but this theme around team performance kept coming up. And the, specifically, what we talked about is high performers have so much institutional knowledge in their heads that are so valuable to new hires, people that are wanting to upskill. And basically, what we asked ourselves was, what is preventing that from happening? And we just felt like documentation was something that was way too cumbersome. It takes a long time to get it down, you know, write it up, create an article. It gets out of date really quickly. And then, you know, when it's out of date, people on your team are pinging you saying, hey, I think this is broken. Can you fix it? Can you update it? And so there's this maintenance burden. And so that's where, like, we started thinking about Tango. In my career, I spent four and a half years at Uber during some of our, like, hyper growth stages. And the team that I joined was specifically focused on our launch playbook. So without even really knowing it at the time, I was getting kind of a best in class education for how documentation can really propel an organization. And so kind of those two insights combined is what pushed us to to start Tango. That's great. So can you talk about some typical customers and how they use Tango just to give people an idea, like what kinds of people are using it and what are the opportunities for it? Yeah. One of our core personas is customer support teams. So customer support teams, very driven by metrics, efficiency, resolution, you know, they, they get a ticket and they want to resolve it as quickly as possible. And so these teams that are focused on that efficiency are looking for ways to document typical escalation paths of a ticket or 
you know, solve for new hires on their team, being able to know what exact workflows they go through. And so these teams that are using Tango are kind of using them in, in four different ways. They're using them to document their internal best practices. Hey, when this type of ticket comes in, here's how we handle it. They're also using it to actually respond ad hoc to customers. So if a customer writes in, oh, hey, I can't change my billing info. How do I do that? They'll actually send them a Tango and say, here's exactly how you go through the steps to, to change your billing info. They're also using it for new hires. Like I mentioned, those new hires kind of using Tango to document some of their early ticket resolutions and get feedback. So they'll send their manager a Tango. And then the last piece that we're seeing is, is people actually populating their help center. So if you've ever gone to a help center and seen, you know, sort of a step-by-step -step tutorial of how to solve the issue or troubleshoot the issue that you're experiencing, we're actually, you know, sort of behind the scenes populating that. Very cool. So I'm interested in talking about like how you get to be a Chrome, like how do you deliver it or how do you process it, develop it so it can be a Chrome extension? Because that seems really, really smart. And then the way you actually just hit this kind of play button and it automatically takes screenshots of everything you're doing. Seems like so someone who is not a incredibly computer savvy could manage this. So maybe you could talk a little bit about like exactly how it works and then how you decided or how you were able to become an extension. Yeah. Yeah. No, we um basically what we're doing, and this is all, you know, if you go on any website and you right click and you click inspect, you can look at that website and kind of see the HTML, CSS behind all the buttons. You can see some of the descriptions in there. And so, you know, really what we're leveraging is already like this blueprint of what's going on on a page. And and not only that, but also you know, something called the document object model of your computer, which tells you basically the activity log of everything that's happening. And so we're repackaging that in a way that actually makes it useful. <laughs> so most people aren't inspecting pages. Most people aren't looking at their DOM, you know, but what we're doing is we're saying, okay, hey, if you give us the permissions to read these things, you know, we know when a click, type, copy, paste, drag, drop, insert text, we know when that's happening. And so in that moment, we take a screenshot. Think of it as like if you were a photographer at a sporting event and you knew in advance all the magical moments of that event, you know, the the perfect pass or the goal, you took a photo at all of those moments. That's kind of what we're doing with our Chrome extension. So that's what powers the the step-by-step -step tutorial generation. The reason we went for the Chrome extension route, because you could easily, you know, say, oh, this should be a standalone app, you know, similar to a Zoom, which we're on right now. But our thinking was, we are basically a tool to document other tools. And there are so many tools within the workplace. I think there's a study from Okta that basically says the average enterprise uses 88 tools, which is crazy. And it's growing every single year. They release this report every year. And so what we said was, you know, how can we almost be passive, like the product experience, not force someone to download a new application, learn that from scratch, and just meet people where they already are. And so the decision to be a Chrome extension was really around distribution and ease of installing. We didn't want to force people to have this crazy behavior change. Oh, here's this new application. Now I have to learn this. But this new application is also helping me with other applications. It just felt very meta. So that's why we went down, down the Chrome extension path. That seems like a really smart idea. Is there some intellectual property or extra, you know, some algorithm that you guys own that helps you to do this in some way? Or is that a part of what you had to establish as a company? So today, there's a few things that, you know, that we're doing that, that are fairly unique when it comes to IP. I mean, the way that we're capturing screenshots and the applications and kind of pulling that all together. Uh, we've also 
actually release like a desktop application, which is a much more sophisticated version of that capture experience. You can do anything on your screen at that point. And so, you know, the real like secret sauce, I would say, is in that, you know, what I described as kind of the, the sports photographer finding those key moments. For us, it's really about what is going to trigger a screenshot, because that at its core is what makes or breaks Tango. If we can basically understand the granularity of each of those steps and when those things matter and when there's something that's happening that matters, that sort of defines the product. We're starting to explore also, obviously, every click, type, copy, paste, that every one of those isn't always necessarily a unique event. We give people that granularity because they can edit after the fact. They say, ah, we picked up too much. But what we want to start understanding is when are a couple actions actually tied together? When can we call that one step? And then actually combine those and create a GIF of those screenshots. So workflow capture, that's the IP. That's what that's what kind of makes Tango tick. That's really interesting. That sounds like that would involve some AI or something to figure out like how many steps you can combine together or just sounds complicated. But that's what's cool, yes. I guess. Yeah. It is complicated and cool, which those two things typically go hand in hand. Right, <laughs> right. exactly. That's true. So what's next for your company? I think you were raising some funding. I know you, you know, you could tell us a little bit about how many people are using it. What are some of the things you're working on right now? Yeah, absolutely. So we, you know, we're a series A company. We've, we've raised a seed round as well as a, a series A round. We raised about 20 million between the two of those. The team is 25 people today, all from really cool, interesting backgrounds. Those 25 people are actually distributed across 13 states. So we are a true pandemic company in the sense that we hired for talent and you know didn't really think too much about geography. And that's benefited us a ton. I mean, we've even hired people who were maybe in these like tier one hubs that you would typically associate with, you know, tech companies. And then once they joined Tango, they said, you know what? I don't have to live here anymore. I'm going to go live where I want to live, uh, which is really powerful. And so really special team. We've had you know a lot of success fundraising, but that fundraising success is kind of reflective of how many people have embraced the product. So we launched about a year ago this time, had a great response. We actually launched on Product Hunt, which is an amazing way to just like launch a product for free. We got 10,000 users in the first two weeks. I think the pain point that we really honed in on with documentation just, just resonated with a lot of companies, teams, roles, it's fairly ubiquitous. And so since then, we've continued to grow. We've got 150,000 users today. Companies are paying for Tango. Individuals are paying for Tango on our on our pro plan. And, you know, the momentum that we're seeing is really powerful. And even, even as people talk about kind of a market downturn, I think what's special about Tango is that in a market downturn, maybe these companies are going to become a little bit leaner or you know, there needs to be a clear ROI on the software that they're paying for. And we've demonstrated that we have that. So we actually surveyed our users a couple of weeks ago and said, you know, hey, just estimate how much time you're saving weekly using Tango. And a majority of our users said three or more hours. I mean, some of those are in the like 10 to 15 hours, and that's just on a per person basis. And so the ROI, when you're talking about a subscription that's $16 a month, you know, it's a little bit more at the company level, but even that, like that pays off very, very quickly, especially when you have a lean team and maybe you're right-sizing your company. Right. Wow. That's a lot of time. Holy cow. That could end up being a, over a year. You figure out that's a huge amount of time that you could do yeah. something else with. So very interesting. Yeah. 
Why don't you tell me what your goals are for this year or the coming few years? Yeah. So we are, you know, like I said, we're 25 people today. We have a goal of kind of doubling the size of the team with the recent funding that we received probably by the end of next year. You know, that's a pretty big goal. And there's a lot of, a lot of considerations too, with growing the team in that way. But, um, you know, for us, from a product standpoint, we've created a very seamless documentation creation experience where we want to go next is really focusing on like the viewer. So viewership is inherent to documentation. I mean, when people are creating documentation, they expect that someone else is going to view it. And so, you know, today there's really no like product experience for a viewer other than like opening the page and seeing and reading it. One thing that's really interesting about what we're doing, because we know the tools that are being used, the actions that are being taken, the sequence that they're being done in, time spent, we sort of envision a future viewership experience where we're surfacing relevant tangos based on the page that you're on. You know, maybe it's something like, hey, three people in your in your organization actually created tangos relevant to this tool. Do you want to explore those? And then even more granular, there may be a version of the Chrome extension where you press play, but instead of capturing your workflow, we're actually guiding you through a workflow and helping you understand, okay, th these are the steps that I need to take. These are the clicks. These are the actions. So we think that's going to be really powerful because that also gives us feedback. Is this still relevant? Is this process documentation that was created still relevant to somebody such that they can execute against it? They can replicate it. And if it's not, that means it's stale. So marrying kind of those two experiences gets us to a point where then we can kind of say, let's get rid of stale documentation entirely. We know what's relevant. We know what people are able to do and not do. We know when things break down, we can tell an organization what their best practices are, what tools are driving efficiency, what people are driving efficiency. And that's a data set that's largely been untapped in organizations today. So there is a big vision for what we call productivity intelligence. And that's just going to go ahead and like help people really be their best at work and never be in a moment of doubt. You know, we, we actually cite this McKinsey study that looked at knowledge workers and basically determined that knowledge workers spend one day per week looking for the right information for how to do their job. And that's like, <laughs> that's a lot of time. It's 20% of your work. And so for us, if we can be that resource, that source of truth that says, here's exactly what you do when you need it in the moments that you need it, helping people get unstuck. That's a really powerful value proposition. Right. In that case, someone could click on the play button and search for like, why is my font size suddenly too small or something like that? And somehow you would have like worked with Mac or someone to like have a tutorial on how to fix that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a great example is like, we have a ton of tangos that are created against like Salesforce, HubSpot, all these tools that are pretty common across organizations. And if you've created a tango that sort of shows your workflow within HubSpot, maybe when one of your teammates logs into HubSpot, we surface that and say, hey, Ken just did this thing in, in HubSpot. Is this what you're looking for? That could be really powerful. And then we, there's also sort of maybe a more granular version of that where you're going through a workflow with tango, maybe you're capturing, and we can actually intervene and say, it looks like you're stuck. Most people that have followed that pathway that you just followed, go to this next step. That's where you start solving a lot of those issues around like, oh, what do I do next? Or like, how do I approach this process or approach this task? 
we're going to be able to do that because of the the data set that we're creating around around documentation. That's awesome. So you're good at documenting your own documentation as well, I'm sure, as a company. I mean, we have to be. Right. Yes, we're working on a documentation solution, so that drives a lot of it. In fact, one of my mentors at Uber, who's now uh, an investor in Tango, always said, if you want to understand the culture of a company, look at the product that they're building, uh, which I always thought was kind of interesting. It breaks down a little bit, but for us, that's very true. But I think it's true for any remote company. I mean, you have to be exceptional at documenting your thinking, your decisions, your rationale. And so we are, uh, yeah, we're pretty good at that. So when you were at Cornell as an A major, did you have any entrepreneurial aspirations at that point? Or do you feel like that happened when you were at Harvard? Or when did you feel like you got the idea that, well, I think maybe I'd want to work in a startup company someday? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think when I came to Cornell, so I'm, I'm from upstate New York, a little town called Darien Lake. It's about two and a half hours away from Cornell. Which is where the amusement park is? That's yeah. right. Oh, my okay. uh, Actually, my entire high school used to work at that amusement park. So that was a lot of fun. Right. I, I think in a future life, I'm going to come up with a sitcom for that specific experience of my life. But coming to Cornell for me was like, that was kind of realizing a huge goal. And, you know, I was very focused on, all right, how do I come here, make the most of it, like, get a great job, and just like, make sure that this, the investment that I was making was worth it, was more than worth it. But, you know, there were a few classes along the way that exposed me to just like a variety of business problems, a variety of like business leaders, which was something that probably kicked off the entrepreneurial bug is just thinking about different leadership principles. And I'll call out kind of two professors. So Pedro Perez in the AIM program, that first course that everyone takes uh, in AIM, that for me was like, holy cow, like this is what school can be. And it just was really energizing. I actually ended up TAing for for Pedro for the next like two years. And then um now is that a course where they bring in speakers from so he outside does the or? speaker, yeah, he does the speaker series as well, which I also okay. took. The intro to business management course is okay. more case study focused. Right. Ended up being a lot of the cases that we explored at at Harvard Business School eventually, but that was an awesome class. And then the other one, I was able to take a course in the Johnson School with the late David Ben Daniel, Entrepreneurship and Private Equity. And that was just like totally eye-opening for me. And I think that was also the first opportunity where I was like, okay, we get to explore an idea as a part of the curriculum and how energizing that was. So it was something where I, you know, I, I don't think I said to myself like, all right, I'm going to leave Cornell and like start a company right away. But it was in the back of my mind because of some of these courses that I took. Right, right. So then you went and worked for a while and then went to Harvard or did you, you didn't go right to Harvard from Cornell, right? No, no, no. I did not go right to Harvard. Right. Um, but I, I went to Deloitte Consulting immediately after Cornell, spent, spent about a year there. And that's when I got the opportunity to join Uber. It was 2014. So I, during a period of crazy growth for that company, you know, that's kind of like I mentioned where I was first exposed to like how documentation can really scale a company and was just a wild ride. I mean, there were the highest of highs, very low lows, but learned a lot about, you know, what it takes to like grow and scale a business. And I think also Uber had a very entrepreneurial culture. If you saw a challenge or you saw an opportunity that like maybe didn't have resources against it, like you could go pursue it. Like if you made enough of a business case, like you could go solve a problem at Uber. And that was, that was another thing to me that was like, oh, okay. Like, that's kind of how entrepreneurship works. I could probably 
try to go do this on my own. So I would say, you know, from Cornell onward, a lot of a lot of my experiences are really about like, how do I build confidence that I can go do this someday on my own? But at a lot of points, I just never felt quite ready. At what point did the three of you decide, okay, we're all sold enough on this idea that we want to start it? And what are your different roles within the company now? So we started working on it January of 2020. Pandemic hit in March of 2020. There was a fundamental shift in the conversations that we were having with not actual customers, but when we were doing customer discovery, you know, where we pitched the idea. And I would say pre-March 2020, it was there was excitement, there was encouragement. But then post-March 2020, that's when a lot of these same people were like, holy cow, you need to build this yesterday. My team just went remote. We went distributed. We have not figured out how to onboard new hires remotely, how to communicate asynchronously. This is something we'd use. And so it was kind of accumulation of those conversations that pushed us to be like, should we just go do this now? And so we, we dropped out of Harvard Business School. And uh, in the fall of 2020, that's when we went out and, and raised our seed round. And you know, one thing that's been interesting, I mean, a lot of folks have varying opinions on how many co-founders you should have, whether you should have a co-founder. There's three of us and plenty of people said, oh, that's a lot of people. Right. And You're going to have we, problems. <laughs> yeah. And we kind of looked at each other and we were like, well, what do you want us to do? Like get rid of one of us? <laughs> but no, but we all naturally fell into very complementary roles. Brian has a an engineering background and, you know, a passion for product and user experience. And so he became our CTO. Dan had been an investor at the VC fund General Catalyst and had worked directly with companies during this like sort of scaling go-to-market phase. And so he led a lot of our go-to-market efforts. And then for me, I had, from my experience at Uber, had had experience leading teams and, you know, was excited about leaning in on things like fundraising, brand, thought leadership. And so, you know, that's kind of where I became CEO, but it's always been kind of a an equal partnership between the three of us. I would say the other benefit of having three co-founders is you're not necessarily going into a meeting and it's you and one other person that are just arguing your case. There actually needs to be some like consensus building within the three, or at least like two people in favor of something and one person who's ready to kind of disagree and commit. And so I think that that's helped us a lot, just like moving faster on decisions that we had to make. Some of those decisions that we, you know, even talked about, like, should we be a Chrome extension? So we've benefited a ton from from having the three of us. We're going to go segue a little bit to you as a person and an entrepreneur. So talk about a little bit about what makes you get up every morning and what maybe you would think of as your mission statement. Like, what are some of the things that really inspire you and drive you to to do this kind of work? Yeah, absolutely. I think Tango specifically. It really is about that time savings. There's such a focus uh, on efficiency within organizations today, which is great. It, it lends itself to that. But when you're talking about individuals getting back three, four or five hours of their week that they can spend on things that they feel like they can make either a bigger impact, so maybe that's things professionally, or maybe that means they can like go home and make sure they make family dinner time. I mean, those are the things that get me really excited about what we're doing is just giving people back time. When it comes to entrepreneurship, I think there's there's a lot of different motivations for wanting to be an entrepreneur. I think for me specifically, it's always been about leading teams of people. That's always what I've 
cared about. I think that comes back to like always being a team sports person growing up, you know, leaning on the people that are on your team, winning together, not winning alone. And, you know, another thing that I mentioned too, which comes back to some of the classes I, I took at Cornell is I love reading about different entrepreneurs and their leadership strategies and what makes an effective leader and how to handle like difficult conversations and difficult situations. Like I really thrive in almost like crisis, well, <laughs> maybe not crisis, you. but a, yeah, but a little bit of like chaos and um, figuring out like how you're going to rally the team and what are the goals that you're going after? I mean, that that's the stuff that like you have to be thinking about constantly as an entrepreneur. And that's what that's what gives me a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. So do you think those are just characteristics that you were born with your um, you know, leadership ability or your ideas about rallying people? Or as you said, you played sports. Were you always the captain? And were you like <laughs> just that was something that you felt really comfortable that role being in? I definitely felt comfortable in that role, but I do think that a lot of the leadership experiences that I had, many of which were at Cornell, it just exposed me to what you can accomplish with a larger group versus what you can accomplish alone. Yes, I was the captain of my sports teams in high school, but and it was a role that I fell into naturally. But the more reps that I got, whether it was being Professor Perez's head TA or being on the Interfraternity Council leadership group, being the president of my business fraternity, those are just reps for me to understand like, oh, wow, like when people are aligned and when people are, you know, are aligned on values or aligned on the goal that we're pursuing, you can really accomplish a lot. And different experiences, I, I probably took inventory myself and said, okay, here's what worked. Here's what didn't. How do I focus more on the things that work and do that in my next experience? And I also became a manager at Uber at a pretty yeah, I think I was 24 when I inherited a team of seven, half of which were all more experienced than I was. And I had to figure out, you know, how do you build credibility and trust when you're so early in your career? And how do you empower people to still have autonomy, but, but also be accountable to the goals that you have as a team? I think there's something there around like, yes, that's a role that I felt comfortable being in. But the more I did it, the more I was like, oh, man, I just want to continue to refine this and tweak it and make it better. Because a lot of I think a lot of motivating people is finding out what motivates them. And everyone is so different. There's so much psychology involved, I think, in like just making a team feel, as you said, empowered, but also productive and efficient. So those are good skills to have for sure. So a lot of your leadership experiences at Cornell were, well, some of them were related to business or your TA position, but you were also you said you're also involved in the Interfraternity Council. Were there other things you did at Cornell, other extracurriculars that were important to you? Yeah, I did a lot of stuff. I, I mean, I was on the club basketball team. I TA'd a couple of courses, oral communication in, in the comms department. And then I ended up TAing for Professor Ben Daniel too in the entrepreneurship and private equity course. So those were all really great experiences. Um, AKSI, which was my business fraternity, that was awesome for me. For those who don't know Darien Lake, my hometown, it, it's definitely like a small town values, you know, sort of farming, dairy farming, corn, soybean <laughs> community, which I value a lot of that upbringing and, you know, sort of instilling the values that I have today. But I wasn't exposed to a lot of like business, I would say. And so I credit AKSI with that is just exposing me to a lot of people that were interested and maybe had more experience in different fields. Interfraternity Council was a big one, took up a lot of time. And I actually worked with people who are listening, probably know Zach Schulman for entrepreneurship at Cornell. I, I worked with him 
at Cayuga Venture Fund after I graduated early my senior year. So I graduated a semester early, spent that semester in Ithaca working with Zach. And that was also just an awesome crash course in high growth startups. So I know that your business is a tool that people use to make their life easier, but I wondered if you also have other tools you've personally have found really helpful in your own either work or personal life that you might want to share with, with us. Yeah, we love, we love tools at Tango. We're constantly like surfacing the newest, greatest things. I mean, some table stakes ones, you know, obviously LastPass for password management, Calendly for event scheduling. We also use Loom, which is more uh, video recording, screen recording. Uh, we use that more for like updates or in place of a meeting. I think for processes, Tango is a better solution than maybe screen recording. And then, you know, another one that Tango works elegantly with, and we've actually prioritized compatibility here is Notion. So Notion is a internal wiki, sort of very popular, sort of new modern enterprises are embracing Notion as their internal knowledge management system. And so for Tango, we basically said, okay, people can create the documentation in Tango, but let's make sure they can export it to Notion or copy and paste it into Notion. So those would be a few, but we, we love Notion. We love the team over there and uh, we work really, really well with them. That's great. I think sometimes there's just so many possible tools that it's nice to have some suggestions from people on which are worth adopting and which are not, because it can be overwhelming, I think. Yeah. So what habits do you have as a person that you think help you the most in your business, either um, how you go about your day or what kinds of things you focus on or any kind of habit that you think might be, have been successful for you? Yeah. And I didn't really appreciate this until I started a company, but as a founder, as an entrepreneur, you're typically the backstop for like everything (laughs) in your company. So if you don't have someone in the HR function, you as the CEO are HR. If you don't have someone in the finance function, you are finance. And so there's a lot of situations like that. I mean, name the function, but you end up being that backstop. And so what can happen is prioritization can like slip away very quickly because you're just getting pulled in so many different directions. But a few exercises that I like to do, because also being a founder and CEO is, can be pretty lonely. I mean, my two co-founders are great, but making sure that your like mental fitness is really strong is also important. So, you know, what I do over the course of a day, and I also do this weekly is what is my one big thing? Like, what's the one big thing that I need to get done this week or today? And at the end of the day, when I'm doing more reflection, I'm actually talking about, okay, where were some moments where I was present? Or I showed up in a way that I want to continue to show up in. And like, how would I describe that? And then also the flip side, like where were some moments where I didn't really show up in the way that I'd want to? What were some of those triggers and why that happened? I think another thing too is like, especially when you have a team of 25, like everyone's kind of looking at you, whether you know it or not. They're trying to see like how you're reacting to things, how you're feeling about something, what your delivery is when you talk about like KPIs for this week. Is it bad? Is it good? How do we read it? And so making sure that you're present in those moments in the way that you want to be is is really important. And so to more directly answer your question, it's a lot of journaling. It's a lot of reflection. I think that that helps a lot because otherwise you you can kind of get lost in, in your own thoughts and feelings. Right. And you're doing that on a daily basis, the reflection a lot of I'm doing the time. that on a daily basis. Wow, I've got like three, awesome. three journals next to me for different things. That's awesome. So at the end of the day, you must carve out a significant, you know, chunk of time and just make sure you do that before you 
go to bed <laughs> or end the day of work. Yeah, I actually worked with another Cornell alum. Her name's Lissy Alden. She does this for her life's work. And she was the one who actually helped me instill a lot of these practices. And so, you know, I think the daunting thing can be like, oh man, I, I would want to do all that, but it sounds like it takes a lot of time. One of the exercises that I love or, or one of the principles that she has in all of this is we call everything speed journaling. So you time yourself, you don't make it open-ended. It's like, all right, in five minutes, what were those moments? Because with that time pressure, you'll probably hone in on, on the key things that you need to. It ends up not taking too much time. I mean, probably 20 to 30 minutes a day, which sometimes that feels like it can be hard to come by, but it's absolutely worth it. Right. The payoff is pretty large then, especially going into the next day, you have a better, clearer mind about what you really want to focus on. Yeah. Yep. That's great. So tell me one thing that people might be surprised to find out about you, some secret you are willing to divulge about you as a person. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's a good question. The other part of this is like, what do you do in your free time? So that's the more like benign kind of question. So you can talk about, you know, what you do in your free time. But also, I'd love to know like one thing that maybe is something that someone would be surprised to know, wow, this is what Ken is all about. Yeah, totally. So, you know, I, th I think it's surprising. One of my big stress relievers is just hitting drums. So I grew up playing the drums. I've actually in this room, I've got a drum set right over there. And so there are there are moments where, you know, you get off a tough call, you know, or maybe something doesn't go well. Hitting a drum is a is a great stress reliever. And it always has been for me. It doesn't matter if it sounds perfect or you play the song perfectly, but like just hitting a drum, that helps. So even if you're not a percussionist, grab a drum, great way to relieve stress. So maybe that's part of what I do in my free time. I still am like try to be very like physically active. So one thing that's big, I'm in Chicago in the suburbs up here. One thing that's really big up here is platform tennis. It's basically like a winterized version of tennis. So I'm in a few leagues and play competitively there. The season's about to start up too. So like me and, you know, some of my group of paddle tennis friends, like we get together and we'll play. And so I think having those like physical outlets is good too. You know, we talked about mental fitness, but making sure that you're getting exercise, cardio, sleeping well, like that, that stuff's all important too. Right, right. Very interesting. So tell me about if you have any free time to read, what are you generally reading? Are you reading novels? Are you reading, you know, um, information online about competitors? Like, what do you try to spend your free time reading? Yeah, this is going to make me sound so intense. But uh, <laughs> I read a lot of like, autobiographies, biographies of just different leaders. I mean, it doesn't have to be business leaders. I really liked Ride of a Lifetime, which is Bob Iger, former CEO of, of Disney. I really liked his book. Shoe Dog is a classic, the founder of Nike, Phil Knight. I like those because it's kind of like a firsthand look into how people handled certain situations. And it's not always like, hey, look at all the great things that I did. I actually read one recently. Andy Dunn, who is the founder of Bonobos, wrote a book actually about like being a CEO, but also dealing with bipolar disorder and like how that affected him and the things that he had to do to like be effective in his role. And that was that was super enlightening. So I read a lot of things like that. I also read stuff related to sports. I listen to Bill Simmons constantly. He's one of my favorite sports reporters. So he's got a he's got a good podcast. 
I'm a huge Buffalo Bills fan. So I'm, I'm reading about what's happening with the team and, you know, who's injured, who's not, who's making the roster, who's not, who are we playing next week? Didn't they just cut some punter or something or had to let the punter go? They did. They, they made the right call and, yeah. and cut that guy. Right. So you've maintained that Bills um, loyalty, even though you're in Chicago. I have. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've lived post Cornell. I've lived in New York City, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, and I've, I've maintained the loyalty, the, uh, the Bills Mafia, as they call it, that runs, that runs deep. <laughs> have you been back to Cornell anytime recently? So I met my wife at Cornell. She was class of 2012. I was class of 2013. Uh, we just went back for her 10-year reunion in June, which was a blast. We actually also have a uh, an eight-month-old. So this was actually the first time that we were able to drop him off with a grandparent or my parents, his grandparents. We got to go back to Ithaca. I mean, so much has like changed in a positive way. It was so cool to see campus and spend time with, you know, old friends that we hadn't seen. But Cornell is like a very special, Cornell and Ithaca are a very special place for us. That's great. And it was good that it was 2022 because you got to do it in person because there were a few reunions there that were virtual because of COVID. So that's nice. That's right. Yeah, we were we were probably crossing our fingers for like a full year, hoping that it would that it would happen. Awesome. So tell us how people can find out more about Tango. Just go to our website, tango.us. And if you want to get in touch with me directly, I'm Ken at tango.us. So inbox is open and uh, would love to would love to hear from folks who listen to the podcast. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here today. It's been really fun to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Kathy. So to find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. And remember to rate and review the podcast by scrolling to the bottom and sharing your thoughts. A special thanks today to Abigail Younger, my editor extraordinaire, and to Bert Odom-Reed of the Cornell Broadcast Studio.